welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Grieve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. I'd like to welcome Charles joining us today. Charles is a pediatric surgeon in Johannesburg. He's uh, been qualified for a couple of years now, did some training in the UK at Great Ormond Street. And in fact, Charles did his master's in intersusception, which is what we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Charles. Cheers. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for the invite. And it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, excellent. Thanks for joining us. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about intersusceptions. Uh, I see the word is derived from the Latin intus, which means within, and susceptio, which means to receive. How would you describe what an intersusception is? Well, intersusception is, is a process where you get proximal loop of bowel that invaginates into a distal segment of bowel. So the segment that is invaginating into uh, the distal segment of bowel is called the intersusceptum, and the bowel that is actually receiving the intersusceptum is called the intersusceptiens. All right. What, what, what kind of um, age groups do we see this phenomenon in? Well, you can, uh, intersusception occurs in, in fact, any age group, but the predominant age group that it does occur is really between three months to three years of age. And intersusception in itself is actually the commonest cause of intestinal obstruction in infants. Okay, so it's actually something we see commonly or should see commonly if we're not seeing it. Correct, yeah. Charles, what part of the intestines do we see this phenomenon taking place? Well, in the, from the pediatric surgical perspective, and specifically in infants, we tend to see the commonest is an ileocolic intersusception. Uh, second to that, it would be a colocolic. But in fact, intersusception can actually occur in any part of the gastrointestinal system. Uh, in the older children, you tend to see more of a jejunal-jejunal intersusception. How do intersusceptions develop? I mean, you mentioned that there's one piece of intestine basically invaginating into another piece of intestine. What creates this environment for this to occur? The pathological process that takes place is um, we talk about a lead point, something that actually propagates or results in uh, the process of intersusception. Now, previously we used to think that in a younger age group, we used to classify this as an idiopathic intersusception, and generally between three months to three years of age. However, even in that, you know, in those uh, episodes of intersusception, there tends to be always some form of lead point, which is really actually an uh, anatomical structure that predisposes to intersusception. And in the older age groups, you tend to have what was traditionally considered as pathological uh, intersusception with pathological lead points um, to occur. But maybe to give you some certain examples, in, you know, in the more idiopathic age group between three months to three years, the commonest that we tend to see is actually you know, hyperplasia or hypertrophy of payers patches or mesenteric lymphadenopathy. Mm. And in fact, in certain cases, even the appendix uh, has, has resulted into susception. When you start looking in the older age groups, um, Meckel's diverticulum, duplication cysts, polyps, uh, lymphomas, a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, Hodgkin's lymphoma, resulting in quite uh, marked 
lymphadenopathy, which then in itself results in intersusception. Okay, so it's actually almost like the intestine is trying to peristalse itself down the intestine because there's some anatomical, as you said, structure or, as you said, lead point, really, that's sort of pushing it down itself, really. Yes, yeah. Um, what we also see in the younger age groups is that we find episodes of intersusception taking place quite soon after upper, either an upper respiratory tract infection also uh, acute gastroenteritis. And here again, you know, those infective processes result in hyperplasia or hypertrophy of the mesenteric lymphadenopathy, which then in itself results in intersusception or predisposes to intersusception. Okay. I see that uh, Columbani and Schultz in their chapter on this topic uh, mentioned that Gross was known to state that there are few illnesses in which the clinical history and the physical findings are more suggestive of the correct diagnosis. What is the typical presentation of an intersusception? So in the infant age group, what we tend to find is this sudden uh, attack of abdominal pain uh, where the infant becomes exceptionally irritable, draws up their legs, uh, there tends to be lethargy associated, some episodes of vomiting. And then what we tend to read typically in the textbooks, they describe this red current jelly stools. So that would be a more of a textbook description. But I think it's also just important to note is that not all cases of intersusception actually present with red current uh, jelly stools. Yeah, it's almost a, a late phenomenon in the process of an intersusception. That sloughing of the mucosa that tends to lead to that red current jelly stool. Correct, yeah. There needs to be some time for that congestion to take place and then subsequently uh, that sloughing of the mucosa mixed with that blood that has aroused from the congestion to get the red current jelly stools. So when you've got a suspicion of a, an intersusception, what's your investigation of choice to confirm the diagnosis? Well, sometimes, of course, based on the history, you subsequently go into your physical examination and features on your physical examination can be quite suggestive of a diagnosis of intersusception. You know, the clinical findings that, um, that you're going to encounter with a child with intersusception, um, you know, specifically in the abdominal examination, of course, you, you could expect to see some distension. Uh, you'd palpate and you're palpating for a mass, and this mass tends to be described as a sausage-shaped mass, uh, predominantly in the right upper quadrant, with an empty right uh, lower quadrant, or empty right iliac fossa. Now, that finding of having an empty right iliac fossa is known as a dancer sign. Part of your uh, examination is also going to include a rectal examination. Okay. Now, the benefit of doing a rectal examination in certain children, you're going to be able to actually feel the intersusceptum uh, within the rectum. And that's actually, you know, quite pathognomonic of, uh, of uh, intersusception uh, if you can actually feel uh, a mass on, on rectal examination with all the other features uh, of intersusception. 
Okay, so in that case, you actually wouldn't need to do any further imaging. You could just use your clinical acumen as actually making the diagnosis. Yeah, you could. But part of my practice, I still include doing a, an abdominal ultrasound for, for objective evidence before you actually start intervening. Okay. And the abdominal ultrasound, you're looking for, really, they talk about the target sign or the pseudo-kidney sign, which are ultrasound features of uh, intersusception. I mean, ultrasounds are becoming more and more advanced as time goes on. I mean, people are talking more and more about duplex Doppler ultrasounds. Is there any benefit to using this in uh, ultrasound of interception? Well, it's been suggested by doing a duplex Doppler, you can make an assessment to see whether there's actually underlying necrosis or not of that interceptum. However, it's not really accurate uh, at the end of the day, your management is going to be based on your clinical findings and your condition of your child, and that's going to dictate what, what path you're going to follow, whether it would be a non-operative intervention or if you feel that the child has gone quite far down the line and is in need of an operative intervention. Okay, yeah, we'll get to that, I think, in a second. Um, you know, often we get called to see these kids, they've had an abdominal x-ray or radiograph by the time we get to see them. Do you think this is a useful investigation? Can we glean any information from this? So the abdominal x-ray I think is quite useful, specifically in that scenario where a child has been having prolonged symptoms. Uh, the x-ray can, can give us an indication if there's actually markedly dilated loops of bowel, specifically small bowel. Um, and that in itself would assist us in, in deciding what would be the best uh, intervention for this child. For example, if, if you obtain an abdominal x-ray and there's uh, markedly dilated loops of bowel, there's paucity of or no air at all within, uh, within the rectum, it's very unlikely that... Uh, you would proceed down the route of actually doing a non-operative intervention and that this child would actually then benefit from, from going to the operating room or going to theatre. Yeah, there's always quite a bit of contentious debate about the best way to, to manage these kids. Um, you know, my experience is that these kids always tend to be a little bit sicker than you think they are. They almost give you a false sense of security when you look at these kids um, what kind of things do you do for these kids prior to even making the decision about mm-hmm. which route to go, operative or non-operative? Or how do you manage these kids even before then? Well, you raise actually a very important uh, point with regards to intersusception, is that intersusception can have significant complications. And specifically in our environment, it's quite often that we actually receive a child with intersusception or suspicious of having interception, who is hemodynamically unstable, mm. hypervolemic, hyperthermic, and in sometimes in septic shock. Yeah. So your priority really for any child that presents with interception or suspicion of interception is to actually evaluate the child and institute appropriate resuscitative measures. So a standard practice that I tend to employ is that any child who comes across with interception needs to have an intravenous access. Okay. A child who's got a distended abdomen and has features of an established bowel obstruction, 
would need to have an insertion of a nasogastric tube. Of course, at that time where you are inserting intravenous access, I do ask for a full blood count and also a UNE. These children tend to have episodes of vomiting. They haven't been feeding well for the past couple of hours or days. And it's not unexpected that you can actually find some renal derangements or electrolytes derangements. Mm. Um, so after you've instituted uh, those measures and you feel that you have resuscitated the child uh, appropriately, then a decision can be made whether the child will have a non-operative intervention or an operative intervention. You know, since the 1800s, sort of in Hippocrates' time and Hirschsprung's time, people have been using hand bellows and hydrostatic and all kinds of other potential manoeuvres to try and reduce these interceptions. Um, in some ways, I think things have changed. In some ways, I think they haven't changed. But you've been talking about how to determine which method we're going to go with. Are we going to go operative or non-operative? What are your criteria for a non-operative versus an operative um, management for an intersusception? So to, to bring in the discussion, when we're talking about non-operative, we're talking about either a pneumatic reduction uh, and in certain places where they're actually still doing a hydrostatic reduction uh, versus surgery. So the child that actually presents with uh, a well-established interstitial obstruction, a child that is having bilious vomitus with large quantity, a markedly distended abdomen, right? a child that has uh, clinically peritonitis, or a child that is hemodynamically unstable or in septic shock, those infants and those children would be far better served and treated by having an operative intervention. Um, children that present with the short duration of uh, symptoms, that whose abdomen isn't markedly distended and they're not having significant bilious vomitus, those are the children that then we would consider, and who also are hemodynamically stable, we would consider to actually undergo a non-operative intervention. In, in my particular practice, that would be a, a pneumatic reduction. All right, so you've obviously mentioned that you can do hydrostatic or pneumatic reductions. You say that in your practice you guys do pneumatic reductions. Maybe you can just talk us through what the actual process is. I mean, what really is a pneumatic reduction? So a, a pneumatic reduction, you know, the, the principles is using air to force the intersusceptum out the intersuscipients. Okay. So that, that's the basic principle around about a pneumatic reduction. But for a child to undergo a pneumatic uh, reduction, you need to have, first of all, the correct environment, you know, the correct equipment, and the correct personnel. Okay. So in my practice, pneumatic reductions are done in the radiology suite under fluoroscopy with the radiologist present, Importantly, the surgeon needs to be present also at that pneumatic reduction, and we'll discuss the reason why. Also is that, as mentioned previously, the child needs to be in a condition, a stable condition, to undergo a pneumatic reduction. Once the child is in that condition, the child still needs to, to have continuous monitoring. So part of my practice is that the child will have a pulse oximeter, we do have uh, nasal prongs oxygen, 
Okay. We ensure that the child has uh, intravenous access. I do not routinely sedate the children. Okay. Right? And also depends depends on the age of the child. Um, you know, much older children, let's say a two-year-old or three-year-old, it could be a consideration that sedation could be given because it just makes the procedure, you know, far easier to to perform, not only for the child but also then for the radiologist and and the surgeon. What we do do, we do give some analgesia uh, before the pneumatic reduction. Okay. Now, for the pneumatic reduction to actually take place, of course, we need the correct equipment. Now, of course, we've got a make-it-yourself piece of equipment, <laughs> which uh, is a Foley's catheter. And the size, of course, depends on the size of the child. And the reason for the Foley's catheter is that we have the balloon. And with regards to the balloon, we can inf- in- insufflate the balloon and create a nice seal after we actually inserted the Foley's catheter uh, into the rectum. And of course, attached to that is uh, a pressure measuring device. Okay. Now, of course, uh, the commonest that we have is our old uh, blood pressure monitors, those finger monitors, uh, and that allows us to actually monitor the pressure uh, while we're doing the pneumatic reduction. And that also needs to be the whole process of how much pressure for how long, I tend to fix quite a, uh, will follow a quite fixed uh, protocol. Okay. So the, the protocol that I tend to follow is that we insufflate air. And importantly, also, we're doing this under fluoroscopy. So we're doing this under constant screening. So we can actually visualize uh, our progression we can actually visualize the air being instilled into, into the rectum and then subsequently in the colon. And we also can visualize the migration of the uh, intersusceptum out of the intersuscepients if we're successful. Right. Now, going back, just going back to the protocol, is that on the maximum pressure that I go initially is up to 80 millimeters of mercury. And we attempt to sustain that pressure for up to three minutes. Okay. After uh, three minutes, if we haven't been successful, we deflate uh, and we wait. We give a resting period of about a minute to two. Okay. And then we make a second attempt. And then the second attempt, we increase the pressure to 100 millimeters of mercury. And again, we sustain that for, for three minutes. If we're not successful after those three minutes, we again wait, we deflate, we wait for another minute or two, and then we do a final attempt. In the final attempt, we go up to 120 millimeters of mercury, and we sustain that for three minutes. Right. And then, if we're not successful, we we deflate. Okay, so I mean, let's just say you weren't successful after those three separate attempts of 80, 100, 120 min, uh, millimeters of mercury. Do you then go straight to theater, or do you consider repeating the pneumatic attempt a few hours? Well, what's your protocol? Well, it actually depends. For me, it depends how much movement we've actually seen of that intersusceptum. Okay. In the scenario where we actually find that there's quite been significant movement of that intersusceptum, and it appears that 
possibly the incisor septum is actually stuck within the cecum. Mm. In that scenario, there is a consideration to wait a couple hours right. and make a, a, another attempt. Okay. And with, with regards, you know, the theory behind that is that you've actually managed to reduce a significant portion of the intersusception. And then hopefully by doing that, we'd actually minimize the congestion and the edema, allowing for then the second attempt to be successful. Okay. However, in the scenario there, what we find if there has been actually minimal movement, mm. you know, no movements at all even, of the interceptum, you know, in that scenario, I don't feel there's actually benefit in delaying uh, definitive treatment. Going to theatre. And then in that scenario, that child would actually go to theatre. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned earlier that you say it's very important for the surgeon to be in the radiology suite while you do this pneumatic reduction. Why? I mean, it's, you know, the radiologist is there, he's screening. I mean, is, is your job just to clench the buttocks so that the catheter doesn't come out or you know why does the surgeon need to be there <laughs> yeah so the reason the main reason why the surgeon needs to be there is really also for continuous monitoring of the child but also in the scenario where there's a perforation that takes place okay and now of course this perforation could either be iatrogenic or the fact that um, you know the intersusceptin has been actually concealing a weakened area of the bowel wall, a distal uh, necrotic area of the bowel wall, and then resulting in perforation. And if you're instilling air under pressure, of course, you know, and there's a perforation, this can all escape and result in, in causing uh, a tension pneumoperitoneum. No okay. And that in itself could result in quite a significant degree of hemodynamic instability. There have been reports in the literature of children actually dying from a pneumatic reduction uh, and then subsequently being complicated with a pneumoperitoneum. Mm. So the purpose of the surgeon is, is really to, if this does take place, which can be easily identified uh, under screening, is to actually decompress that abdomen. Uh, and, and the way we do that is actually with a needle decompression. Right. So we tend to either use a 16-gauge or an 18-gauge uh, RV cannula or, or gelco, and we do an immediate decompression at that, at that point. Okay. What, what are your feelings about uh, peri-reduction antibiotics? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to my, my image and just with regards to the literature that, that I've actually come across, is that there have been fatalities from children who've had a pneumatic reduction who have been successful because of the significant translocation of bacteria that actually takes place. From the actual pressure from the pneumatic reduction? Well, even just from the intestinal obstruction. Okay. There's actually been animal models... Uh, done on mice where they, they modeled uh, obstruction and they actually measured for cytokines and LPS lipopolysaccharides within the bloodstream and they've noticed a higher, higher amounts uh, in the intestinal obstruction model. There hasn't really been any literature to, to suggest whether you should or whether you shouldn't give, give an antibiotic. 
the cases that are that I tend to give antibiotics, and it's not it's not a protocol that are useful all cases with intussusception, but it's definitely the case where you haven't been successful with your first episodes of pneumatic reduction. Mm. And in those scenarios of those children that you want to either repeat a second, if we can put a course of pneumatic reduction, I'd give an antibiotic. And of course, in those children that have failed in pneumatic reduction and you decide to go for operative intervention, in that scenario, I would, also, I would definitely give an antibiotic. Okay. So I see in the first world literature, most people report about a 90% success rate for pneumatic reduction. What did you find at your, in your research at, in Johannesburg and Baraguanath? What is your pneumatic reduction rate? Yeah, so with the children that actually presented to, to both hospitals um, when we were doing the review of our, of our practice, only 50% of those patients actually could undergo pneumatic reduction. Okay, so the whole cohort, only, only half of them were suitable candidates for reduction. Correct. Okay. And then out of those, 50% had a, a successful um, pneumatic reduction. Uh, so out of the entire cohort of patients that we looked at, um, only 33% actually had a successful pneumatic reduction. Why do you think our pneumatic reduction rates are so much less than the first mm. world? Well, the one thing that we're looking at is actually duration of symptoms. Okay. And if you looked at our entire cohort of patients, our average duration of symptoms was 2.2 days. Okay. Now, if you had to compare that to first world countries, you know, they're talking about hours. Right. <laughs> and we actually found, you know, after univariate analysis and logistic regression, we found that duration of symptoms, a prolonged duration of symptoms, you know, is associated with uh, negative outcomes. Right. Negative being failed reduction or... Failed reductions, uh, surgery. Okay. Uh, small bowel resection. Right. Ileostomy. Okay. Relook laparotomies. Yeah. And even mortalities. Sure. So tell us one last question about non-operative reductions. Why do you favor pneumatic reduction as opposed to hydrostatic reduction? Yeah, so it, it's actually, I think, it's been conclusively shown, really, within the literature that pneumatic reduction's rate of success is higher than a hydrostatic um, a reduction. The other advantage in a pneumatic reduction over a hydrostatic reduction is actually with regards to perforation, is that if you are going to have a perforation with pneumatic reduction, your contamination actually tends to be more contained. And they've actually found that with a hydrostatic reduction, if you actually have a, a perforation, you tend to get quite a marked or a diffuse contamination of the abdomen. Mm. So that tends, you know, that tends to be, you know, of course, all in favour with pneumatic reduction. In saying that, there is literature that they're describing a new technique of actually doing a, a saline reduction under ultrasound guidance. Right. Now, I've never, I've personally haven't had experience with that. 
Of course, I think the advantage with regards to that technique is less radiation exposure, mm-hmm. which, you know, as we know, is not without its own without its own negative effects. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting when you look at the recurrence rates of intersusception with the different methods. And um, they seem to say that it's slightly higher with hydrostatic reductions. And I always wonder if you're looking at the ultrasound whether you're not getting false positive reduction rates. Because mm. my impression has always been that it's quite difficult to, right at the end, differentiate sort of secular edema versus a persistent intersusception. Whereas obviously... With either contrast under fluoroscopy or air under fluoroscopy, you've got a pretty good idea of when there's air refluxing back into the small bowel, which obviously you don't see then with the hydrostatic rates. What's your favoured operative procedure? I mean, obviously you can do this laparoscopically or open. Mm. What are you doing? Right. So maybe just just to address uh, laparoscopy in, in the scenario of interception. So I do make use of laparoscopy and in the scenario that I use laparoscopy is in the child that's had a pneumatic reduction, you found that the interceptin has actually migrated quite quite a far away, um, but it's still sitting almost likely in the cecum or in the ascending colon. Let's say the child's had a, a repeat session of pneumatic reduction and, and you have failed. Okay. So in that child, when I go to the operating room, I actually start off laparoscopically. And the reason why I do that is that there has been some episodes. And in fact, so when we were doing our audit review of patients at, at both of Janisburg's hospitals, we found that there were children who actually underwent spontaneous reduction. Mm. So by the time you're actually in theatre you find that it's actually reduced. Right. So in that scenario, that's when I've actually used laparoscopy. And in fact, I do make an attempt to actually, if there is an intersusception that's still evident, I do make an attempt to actually to reduce that intersusception laparoscopically. Uh, If we're not successful reducing it laparoscopically, then of course we we convert. Mm -hmm. And then we do a standard uh, open procedure of doing uh, a supraumbilical right transverse incision. And we assess, we see if we can actually reduce it manually. Uh, we assess if there's any necrotic bowel, if there's any evidence of a lead point, and also if there's any downstream perforations. Mm. Now, of course, there's those cases that who aren't candidates for pneumatic reduction. Right. right. So either that there's a well-established intestinal obstruction, the child was hemodynamically unstable, or features suggestive of septic shock or peritonitis. In that scenario, those children have an open procedure. I do not attempt a, a laparoscopic procedure in that scenario. Okay. So they go directly for, for an open procedure. Mm. If you manage to reduce the intersusception at open or laparoscopy, do you do an appendicectomy or not? Yeah, that, that's a bit of a contentious issue. <laughs> and 
Yeah, I don't know if there's actually any objective measure, but, you know, you need to base your practice on some degree of uh, objectivity. So if I find that the appendix is actually looking congested or swollen, um, yes, I I do tend to do uh, appendectomy. Uh, It's not a routine practice. It's really based on, on on those findings, intraoperative findings. Some people discuss that um, doing laparoscopy in kids of the non-typical age group, so let's say kids older than three years of age, one of the issues is obviously the ability to look for pathological lead points. Mm-hmm. Do you use that as well when you make a decision in terms of doing laparoscopy versus an open procedure? Yeah, I think that's also operator-dependent um, you know, doing a laparoscopic procedure, you, I, I see no reason why you can't actually evaluate the bowel to actually look for a pathological uh, lead point. Unless, of course, in the scenario where there's actually marked you know, abdominal distension due to small bowel distension, where it makes then your, your operative space uh, you know, very confined and difficult, you know, I accept that that's going to be... Um, a special scenario where there would be no benefit in doing laparoscopy. Mm. But if that's not the case, you know, laparoscopy, you can evaluate the entire length of the bowel. And, you know, I think it also depends on on your operative experience. You could use the the laparoscope to make a diagnostic assessment. If you do come across a pathological lead point, let's say uh, a Meckel's, Diverticulum, and you want to address that Meckel's diverticulum. You know, there's no reason why you can't exteriorize the bowel. You know, from a from a lower incision and do the resection, and then do an anastomosis. Mm-hmm. You know, doing lymph node biopsies as well. You know, mesenteric lymph nodes that are quite prominent. And you know, it's quite feasible to do that uh, through a laparoscopic approach uh, as well. Speaking about you know pathological lead points, I mean, if you manage to reduce a a kid who's say four or five years old pneumatically, how do you follow those kids up in terms of looking for pathological lead points? Well, I, I think out of my practice, I don't think I would attempt a pneumatic reduction on a on a four or five year old. Okay. Um, you know, the age cutoff that I tend to use is is three years, and there's some evidence to suggest, of course. You know that, as we know, after that age group, you know the percentage of pathological re- lead points tend to increase, and it's sitting around actually around about thirty percent. Mm. So it's still low, but it, it's a significant number. So in children that of that age group, I would actually start off with actually doing a, a laparoscopy uh, in the operate, operating room. Okay. And they wouldn't they wouldn't go undergo an attempt of a pneumatic reduction. Mm-hmm. Are there any groups of intersusception that you would just observe and not do anything with? Yeah. So every now and again we get a phone call from the from the radiologist while they're doing a um, a CT scan for let's say for you know something else, a renal mass or whatever the case might be. And they incidentally actually find a, a small bowel intersusception, a jejunal jejunal intersusception. 
you know, the, the approach that I tend to follow, of course, is that, you know, those children, you know, need to be admitted, they need to be under observation, they need to have analgesia, even sometimes a consideration of an antispasmodic, and you monitor, you can monitor those incidental findings of interception, and the vast majority of them actually tend to, uh, tend to resolve uh, spontaneously. So it's really in that scenario of an older of an older child with a incidental finding of a of a small bowel um, interception. But of course, you you need to package you know this non-intervention approach with some time frame. Mm. Yeah, you know, and that is you know debatable. I suppose it also depends on you know the the patience of the surgeon really. Uh, whether you observe for six hours or even if you wait a little bit longer, you know, 12 to 24 hours. Um, but I think the important thing is is that you need to box it into a time frame. And if there hasn't been any resolution of that interception within that time frame, then I feel that the, your next step needs to, be, needs to be an intervention. And that would be a laparoscopy. Yeah, and obviously also if the kid's symptomatic or asymptomatic, Related to that interception as an incidental finding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you ever see cases of recurrent intersusceptions? I'm going to say in the idiopathic age group. Yeah, we do see that, and they commonly occur within the first 24, 48 hours. Now, of course, you know recurrence is far more common in in you know, after a non-operative intervention, that being a pneumatic reduction. Right. Uh, that's when you tend to see recurrences. Now, from a personal perspective, and also in our, you know, in our review of all the patients uh, in our study, um, we didn't have any episodes of recurrent interception after an operative intervention. That's I think you, that's because you cut all the bowel. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Well, even in the scenario of actually doing a manual reduction. Yeah. So, in certain operative cases, uh, all you need to do is a manual reduction. So. Uh, you know, I think it, you know, some of those cases did land up having a appendectomy or a lymph node biopsy because it would look quite prominent. Um, I was laughing because I, I, I seem to remember it was between 80 and 90% resection rates for your operative Yeah, intervention. Yeah, that's right. So I think out of 65, there were 65 patients that had an operative intervention. 12 of those patients had either manual reduction or had a spontaneous reduction. Okay. So, and of course, our indications for for resection are necrotic bowel. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it is a it is a high it's it is a high incidence of uh, resection. Um, so, to get back to your recurrent mm. interceptions. So, yeah. so basic postoperatively, um, we we haven't seen any recurrent uh, interceptions. But in the scenario where we do see uh, a recurrent uh, intersusception, you know, wh- what is going to be your next step? And, and specifically in those children in the, you know, in the idiopathic age group, we would attempt uh, another pneumatic reduction. Okay. When, when do you get to the point where you've done this too many times, you decide mm. there must be something else going on, you need to go and look for it. Yeah, there, there's no really you know, perfect answer to that, but it has suggested if you've actually had three episodes of uh, intersusception. 
so your initial episode and then subsequently two recurrent episodes then it might be a consideration you know and prudent to actually go and investigate for you know a significant pathological lead point you know the question what your investigation of choice should be whether it should actually be some imaging mm. uh, or a CT scan or MRI or whether actually doing an laparoscopy would actually you know be more definitive uh, a better diagnostic measure and also once you have identified your your pathological lead point uh, the therapeutic measure uh, at the same time Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a difficult thing to to answer or to have a blanket sort of approach. Mm-hmm. You probably do need to look at each patient individually. Do you ever see intersusceptions as part of a syndrome or syndromic variance? So, you know, with a syndromic or other you know, anatomical anomalies associated with the intersusception, you know, there is a description of uh, a war syndrome where you have a malrotation um, associated with intersusception. And in the scenario of having uh, a degree of malrotation, you've got a very mobile cecum in itself mm. that predisposes to, to intersusception. You know, I think it's I think it's quite contentious. You know, um, uh, an association, and I don't think anyone has conclusively shown that the intraoperative finding of uh, of a very mobile cecum whether that would predispose to intersusception. And the reason why I say it's contentious is what about all those other cases that have had a successful pneumatic reduction, never have a recurrence. You know, what percentage of those cases would actually have a very mobile you know, cecum uh, predisposing to intersusception? And you know, if it did, I would expect there to be a much higher recurrence rate mm. and then subsequently needing an operative intervention and then at that point identifying that there is this, this war syndrome. You know, the other thing is actually making an assessment of of malrotation intraoperatively you know uh, and what's been suggested it's not really your typical um, uh, malrotation where you know your DJ flexure hasn't crossed the midline it's not at the level of the pylorus you know what we've tended to find is yes there's a mobile uh, mobile cecum but when you actually assess the DJ flexure it's it's not that far off where it needs to be. Mm. You know, we've tended to find that the DJ flexure is actually, if anything, sitting you know midline. Uh, nothing more to the right than that, really. Yeah, yeah. I've always thought that if you're going to get a an interception that's ileocolic that extends anyway down the colon, surely you need to have a mobile cecum for that to occur, mm. and maybe those that are successfully reduced pneumatically, maybe their cecum is relatively fixed, and that's why the interception actually can't progress that far, and that's why those ones get reduced easier. Mm. But, I, I mean, it's it's all speculation, really, as yeah. opposed to, you know, based on fact. 
Charles, if I had to ask you just for one take-home message regarding intersusceptions, what would that be? Yeah, I think the, the most important thing um, is actually evaluating the child or infant and assessing you know, the hemodynamic status of the child you know, and instituting the appropriate resuscitative measures, you know, evaluating whether the child is shocked whether the child is uh, hypothermic, whether the child is hypovolemic, uh, ensuring that the child is resuscitated, you know, has intravenous access, if necessary has a nasogastric tube uh, inserted before any decision is made with regards to which path you're going to go down, whether it's going to be a non-operative intervention or even an operative intervention, is the initial evaluation and the resuscitation of, uh, of the infant and the child. Yeah, thanks, Charles. I, I really appreciate you spending the time with us and actually giving us, you know, the clear indication that, you know, it's not always as the textbooks describe it. And in reality, depending upon where you are in the world, you know, the way things present and, and actually the outcomes and the way that these things should be managed is different depending upon your local environment. And we really appreciate your inputs. Thank you for joining us. Cheers. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together. Catch you next week.